Hello, this is Pod Academy. Like many of his wealthy contemporaries in the 18th and 19th centuries, Lord James Bruce of Kinnaird made the grand tour of Europe. Unlike many of them, he also ventured further afield. For three years, from 1769 to 1772, the six-foot-four Scottish laird with vivid red hair travelled to Abyssinia, the old Ethiopian empire comprising the northern half of present-day Ethiopia. But his reasons for going are shrouded in mystery. Was he trying to find the source of the Nile? Or, like an 18th-century Indiana Jones, was he really searching for the Ark of the Covenant? Our producer, Antonia Dalival, takes up the story. Bruce arrived in the country at a time when Abyssinians weren't exactly fans of Europeans. A century earlier, the emperor had kicked out the Portuguese Jesuits. They had pushed their luck and tried to convert the already Christian Ethiopians to Catholicism. After the last of the Portuguese fled with their tails between their legs, Abyssinia closed itself off to outside influence, barricading itself against those they called the hyenas of the West. Abyssinians paid each other to spread fake news to foreigners about the journey into the interior, hoping they would turn around and go back the way they came. A common bluff was that a rampant warlord was blocking the road. With a couple of exceptions... Bruce was pretty much the first European to set foot in the country ever since the expulsion of the Jesuits. A notable exception was the 17th century French doctor Jean-Baptiste Poncet, who exclaimed that the Abyssinian highlands, fragrant with flowers, reminded him of the most beautiful part of Provence. Bruce surely achieved his passage to Gondar, not only because of the liberal distribution of gifts, from gold to English pistols, but also because he was fluent in Ethiopian languages, having studied them industriously before leaving Europe. He arrived in Gondor on the occasion of an outbreak of smallpox, but this unfortunate event had a silver lining for Bruce. Europeans before him had used medicine to get into the Abyssinian court. Luckily for Bruce, he had studied medicine in Arabia and was able to lend a hand. As a Protestant Scot, Bruce was in a position to forge a closer bond with the imperial family, who were anti-Catholic. At one point, Bruce placed his hand on a Bible and explained to the Abyssinian queen, the Itiga, I declare to you, by all those truths contained in this book, that my religion is more different from the Catholic than yours is. There has been more blood shed between the Catholics and us on account of the difference of religion than ever was between you and the Catholics in this country. In Abyssinia, royal and religious history are interwoven. If asked, who do you think you are, Abyssinian queens could justifiably say the Queen of Sheba. Abyssinian royalty traced their lineage back to the King of Kings, King Solomon. Bruce was similarly insistent about his royal lineage. He commissioned the Bruce of Kinnaird Tartan, to be woven from 14 colours of yarn, twice the royal seven. Bruce was the direct descendant of the fierce Scottish warrior king, Robert the Bruce. After a gruelling interrogation from the teenage emperor on the subject of England, he became lord of the bedchamber. The Scottish laird was now an official member of the glorious Gondarian court. 
Fluent in Amharic and Guise, with his hair curled and perfumed in the Abyssinian fashion, he was the most punctilious guest. As Bruce would say about the emperor, Nor did I ever after see in his countenance any marks either of doubt or diffidence, but always, on the contrary, the most decisive proofs of friendship, confidence and attention. Michael gave Bruce a manuscript, the Kebranagast, which translates as the glory of kings. But Ras Michael wasn't a king. He had seen off a string of kings through misadventure. When Bruce was in Abyssinia, Ras Michael was jerking the strings of power. I bet your mental image of Ras Michael is not of a weak, an elderly man. But that's what Ras Michael was. And while he had been busy grabbing power for himself, the empire was becoming weaker and weaker. Battles marked the political landscape. In the second volume of Bruce's book, he uses information drawn from the Kebranagast, as well as his own first-hand observations, to write about the royal and political history of Abyssinia. He compiles short biographies of Abyssinian monarchs from the 13th century to 1769. He inserts Ras Michael into this narrative and talks about the cultivation of his friendship with the governor. Raz Michael was right where he wanted to be, alongside a string of kings as a powerful ruler. The Kebranagast has another name, the Chronicles of Axum. A closer look at the manuscript's subject matter sheds light on another possible reason why Bruce was in Abyssinia at that particular moment in time. The city of Aksum in northern Ethiopia was the ancient capital of a powerful empire which stretched from southern Egypt to southern Arabia, and it may have links with Scotland. Now, hear me out. The Kleber Nagast describes how the Queen of Sheba set off from Aksum to see King Solomon in Jerusalem. It was a fruitful meeting. They would have a son who would become the first emperor of Ethiopia. According to the Kebra Nagast, their son brought the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, from Jerusalem to Aksum. In 1769, Bruce would have been in Abyssinia in time for the Feast of Epiphany. During this religious ceremony, the tabot is brought out, covered by cloth, and paraded by priests. A tabot, the Ethiopian word for Ark, is a sacrosanct representation of the Ark of the Covenant. These wooden tablets are so sacred that they can only be seen by Ethiopian clergy. They are invisible objects. In Aksum on that day in 1769, the real Ark of the Covenant would have been at the centre of celebrations. And where was Bruce on this day? only a couple of miles away. But Bruce is weirdly quiet about his time in Axum. Any talk of the Ark of the Covenant seemed to be strictly under wraps. This was out of character for Bruce, who usually furnished his narratives with a lot of detail. Back in Edinburgh, Bruce was a member of a secret society. 
Bruce was a Freemason. In a Masonic lodge in Edinburgh, he fraternised with figures of the Scottish Enlightenment, like David Hume and Robert Burns. Freemasons were intensely interested in the Bible's most important structure, the Temple of Solomon, built to house the Ark of the Covenant. The Masonic Lodge, Canongate Kilwinning Lodge No. 2, had been given to the Templars by Bruce's ancestor, King Robert the Bruce, in the 14th century. Kilwinning is a town in Ayrshire, Scotland. There are theories that this Scottish town is the location of the Hidden Holy Grail and a sacred biblical mountain called Heardom. Perhaps Axon was the reason Bruce came to Abyssinia in the first place. Had he gone to Abyssinia to see if the Ark was really there? Was he the real Indiana Jones? He would have been aware of the Ark's importance to the Abyssinians and the role Tabots play in their religion. Concealment is intrinsic to the reverence of these objects. Had Bruce quietly put in a word about the Ark in Abyssinia to the Freemasons in Edinburgh? His secret would have been safe within the stone walls of the Masonic Lodge. Ethiopian manuscripts speak volumes about the country's history and culture. They highlight aspects of the country's past that have been overlooked by Europeans and signal the two-way traffic of antiquarian exchange between 18th century Ethiopia and Enlightenment Europe. By disseminating these manuscripts among the monarchies and libraries of Western Europe, perhaps Bruce was helping to advertise Abyssinia in the West. The Kebra Nagas describes how the Ark of the Covenant was transported from Jerusalem to Axum by red-headed angels. Could this have been a subtle reference to Bruce? But things would get complicated when Bruce was back in Britain. Writing about Abyssinian royal and political history for a British audience would be a challenge. Bruce wrote his multi-volume travelogue in an unorthodox way. Sixteen years after his visit to Abyssinia, he sat down and recited from memory an eyewitness account of Abyssinian history and culture. His assistant, Benjamin Latrobe, desperately tried to add structure to his confused narrative where memory melted into imagination. It was questioned how reliable Bruce's writings really were. It wasn't helped by the fact that Bruce was a walking paradox. He was a charmer, but be wary if you crossed his path. He was a fan of jewels, although they were by then out of fashion. He was anti-Catholic. Well, anti-Portuguese. He liked the Spanish. He brought along instruments of mathematical mensuration to chart the Red Sea and find out how Moses parted it. Over the years, James Bruce has been dismissed as an eccentric Scottish laird. The Scottish professor Alexander Murray edited, or in his words, improved, the second volume of Bruce's travelogue in 1805. 
Murray talks about the Kebra Nagast in a letter to the English artist Henry Salt in 1811. The early kings of Abyssinia are almost entirely forgotten. Only their names remain, and these are neither correct or genuine. In Abyssinia, the Kebranagast was a historically reliable source. At the same time, it's a storehouse of legends and traditions from historical, folkloric, biblical, rabbinic, Egyptian, Arabian and Ethiopian sources. Murray urged the English artist and Egyptologist Henry Salt to retrace Bruce's footsteps and double-check that Bruce wasn't making it all up. And while he was there, he might as well try opening commercial contact with Abyssinia. Salt redrew the antiquities Bruce had seen in Axum. With a lick of watercolour, Salt made these drawings into romanticised landscapes. The British loved them. King George III heard the rumours about Bruce's unreliability. He hid the Ethiopian manuscript Bruce gave him. Meanwhile, another ancient African civilization caught the antiquarian's attention. Ancient Egypt. This would culminate in the Egyptomania of the 1920s. Even today, Ethiopian collections have been absorbed and subsumed in Egyptomania. At one point, it seemed as though the only legacy Bruce would leave behind would be the Brucea antidicenterica, an Abyssinian plant Bruce named after himself, which was used to treat bad bowels. But all is not lost. <laughs> glimpses of Ethiomania out there, in the form of Enochmania. An Ethiopian manuscript Bruce brought with him was thought to have been lost for 2,000 years. This was the Book of Enoch. And as a result, Europe rediscovered Enoch, the biblical patriarch, father of the arts, and angel. Bruce's contemporary, the English visionary artist-poet William Blake, would absorb himself in the mystical cult of Enoch. Capturing his imagination, Enoch became the subject of illuminated poems and his only lithograph. Bruce's travelogue was described as a true romance novel. I bet you've heard of Samuel Taylor College's Kubla Khan, which he completed in 1797. Coleridge got hold of a copy of Bruce's travelogue in 1794. What if Coleridge's poem was a result of a Bruce-influenced dream after reading a volume from Bruce's book? In his dream, Coleridge sees an Abyssinian maid. She plays a stringed instrument and sings about Mount Abora. The word is strikingly similar to Atbara, the name of a river that flows through Abyssinia into the Nile. Bruce had mentioned an Abyssinian maid, who he met on his way to the source of the Nile. He called her the nymph of the Nile. She was the 16-year-old daughter of a village chief. Her nickname was Ferret, but perhaps nymph of the Nile had a better ring to it. In his travel log, Bruce remembers the moment he discovered the source of the Nile. It is easier to guess than to describe the situation of my mind at that moment. Standing in that spot which had baffled the genius, industry and inquiry of both ancients and moderns for the course of near 3,000 years. I triumphed here in my own mind. 
over kings and their armies. Actually, Bruce wasn't so original. The Portuguese had got there before him, a century earlier. But Bruce made a conscious decision to forget this small detail. At the source of the Nile, he scooped Nile water into his coconut cup and made a toast to King George. And all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. This extract from Kubla Khan sounds a bit like someone we know. Like a dream, Coleridge's poem is probably a hodgepodge of things he had seen, read and thought about. He'd even made a note to himself to find the fountains of the Nile. Bruce's story is part of a hidden history of the political relations between Britain and an uncolonized African country. Europeans and Ethiopians have cooperated together since the early modern period. The impact of Ethiopian antiquarianism on artistic and scientific developments in Enlightenment Britain remain unappreciated today. The diplomatic gifts that Bruce conveyed to the Vatican, the French royal court and the British royal court are today dispersed. The stories of friendship that lie behind the presence of these objects in Western collections are neglected in today's charged discourse around African objects in European collections. Chalet, who is <laughs> 